Uh, this is just a, a chance for me to to actually meet you. And I've got to say that I am just so pleased to have you because you have influenced my thinking for decades. Um, I have had Darwin Among the Machines on my bedside table for most of the years of my adult life. I And, and your essay, Turing's Cathedral in 2005, which was on edge.org, absolutely changed my thinking and was something that was needed by me and really changed how I moved through the world. And I wanted to thank you for that. And you know, the reason I wanted to have you on the podcast today is we've got early stage technologists, early stage founders. And I felt like when I read your books and your essays, I was given a great gift, which was to sort of fill in a, you know, Joseph Campbellian creation myth, a sense of direction and purpose and context for what I was doing every day. Like I, as a founder, was running around worrying about offices or W-2s or calendars or venture capital. And, you know, in the chaos of all that and the freneticness of that, what is the meaning? What is the purpose of what we're doing? What is the context and what we're doing? And you provided that to me with your writing. So thank you so much. And today I'm hoping to do a podcast with you that allows me to bring that to the other founders who might not have read your stuff, who might not have heard it in a way. And if I can give them chills. The way I got chills reading your stuff, that would be a great, great outcome for me in this. So thank you for being here, George. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Well, thank you. I mean, sort of a writer like me just, you know, sort of exists in a vacuum and you sort of construct these worlds. It's like a novel, but it's, you know, it's the past. And then so to find an audience is, is just great. So. Oh, absolutely. So I'd like to, you know, set the stage for a second because we're going to get back to the content of Turing's Cathedral in a second. But in the title, you're referring, of course, to Alan Turing, who with John von Neumann invented the first digital computer. And could you go take us back and explain to us how the digital universe sort of began to, to explode after World War II? Yes. And you have to be careful of saying first, because it, obviously it was not the first digital computer. There were lots of you know, there were digital computers going back a very long time. What you can say was first was the von Neumann computer was one of the first to have a memory that worked at the speed of light rather than the speed of sound. That was the big transition that suddenly things were, you could calculate the speed of light rather than the speed of sound. That made, that made all the difference. And Turing was abstract logician. I mean, he came from the world. In fact, my father told me, you know, he read that paper when it came out in the 1930s and, and thought it had no connection to reality at all. I mean, it was an interesting piece of mathematics, but would never, one would never have expected it to, you know, to completely change our, our tangible day-to-day -day world. And it did. That's where we started to move into digital computers that moved at the speed of light. And so we have the atomic bomb, we have World War II, and then things start to accelerate. Yes. So what Turing did was produce, which mathematicians like to do, sort of a toy model. So he produced this one-dimensional model of digital computing that you had a not infinite, but an unbounded, a finite, but unbounded length of paper tape, just a string of bits, and you can move this string back and forth. But you can't, to get to any point 100 feet ahead, you have to go through all 99 feet of tape. And so that was very impractical, but it was very interesting. And then by a series of accidents, I mean, Turing ended up in the middle of World War II, as ever, everyone did. And that then became a real problem because you had the Germans were using digital codes to com communicate with a U-boat fleet. And this question of could one machine imitate the behavior of another machine became a very influential in saving England and the rest of us during the war. Von Neumann was working on the other side. You know, Turing was working on decoding messages. Von Neumann was in America. He came to America in 1930. And he was working on the atomic bomb problem where you needed to compute hydrodynamics, radiation hydrodynamics. And 
what he did, which now seems entirely obvious, but he sort of made Turing's one-dimensional model two-dimension producing, which we now absolutely take for granted that you have an address matrix where you give two coordinates like a chessboard and that gives you a location, a memory location. Sort of everything changed after that once you had this original address matrix and the version that he built was 32 bits by 32 bits by 40 bits. So it was like this little array of memory and if you add that all up, it's by our modern nomenclature, it's five kilobytes. So the number that sort of always stuck in my mind, I was born in 1953 and in 1953 there were 53 kilobytes of of this high-speed memory on the entire planet just exploded from there. It starts to you know grow in a sort of uh, geometric pattern, which is slowly at first, but then it starts to accelerate with Metcalfe's law, and we get a lot more compute, a lot more storage. In 1997, you came out with this book about Darwin among the machines, and in it, you go through the history of how we got here, how we get to 1997, and what's the motion as, as the intelligence of the planet creates life, the intelligence of the life creates language and culture, and that is now produced producing this digital silicon-based life, and we are in the midst of this moment, and that nature itself is sort of birthing these machines to life. Even though they don't seem like life to us, they really are. And, you know, Hans Moravec and others like you were talking about various forms of AI. So I got a chance to read that book, and it really set a tone for me about where we were in our journey. And then in 2005, you come out with the Turing's Cathedral, where you, having finished a talk about the future in Google, are asked by one of the young engineers, why is everyone so upset that we're digitizing the books and violating their publishing revenues? Don't they understand we're not digitizing the books for people? We're digitizing them for the coming AI, so the AI can become intelligent by reading everything that we've written. And at that moment, you realize that here's a group of people who fundamentally already believe in what you had written about eight years earlier, that we are in this movement, you know, and at the same time, Second Life is coming and we've got virtual worlds. Um, I was on the board of that company for five years at that time. And you start to see this pattern. You see this, this Turing's Cathedral article that you wrote. What was it like feeling at that moment for you to, to sort of encounter a group of people who are so in the midst of this process. What inspired you to write that article? In a way, it was a revelation. Poor engineer who I talked to, you know, at that time, Google was very secretive and not supposed to be quoted. Almost lost his job for saying that to me. Yeah, the title came out of that. I mean, that afternoon, I came out of Google and southern end of San Francisco Bay there. And see, when Turing was, he sort of, in advance, he answered the critics. He wrote a paper, why are you trying to create intelligent machines? You know, only, you're going to get in trouble, only God can create intelligent machines. And his answer was that we are no more, the question sort of goes further, is are you going to create artificial souls? And his answer was that we are no more uh creating intelligent machines than humans are when we create children. We all, and so his exact words are, we are only creating mansions for the souls that only God, only he, capital H, can create. And that's when I walked out of there, I said, wow, this isn't Turing's mansion. This is Turing's cathedral, what Google was doing at that time. It's a brilliant title. It really captures the sort of religiousness of it, right? Sort of like Joseph Campbell would say with the hero with a thousand faces, this is another moment at which the hero is born. It might be an AI hero, but it's, it's, it's coming to be born. 
Yes, so it captures the, also the group effort in the sense that old cathedrals are were built over hundreds of years where nobody really laid claim to any part of it. Spend your life working on one corner of a tower and someone else would spend their life working on the floor. And then you know, after a few hundred years, it was finished. As I read it, I felt like I was one of the stonemasons. And I wasn't at Google, but I, I felt like what you were saying was that Google might be in the end, the biggest company, but it can't be the only company. And and it might be based in Silicon Valley, but eventually the Google employees will span the globe as they do today. And it wasn't just people in Silicon Valley or at Google, but it was everybody who was reading and contributing to edge.org, the wonderful place where you published this. And so that whole community of minds was birthing this together, right? Yes. Yeah. Lots, yeah, lots of people have been thinking about this for, for a long time. So I went, I was at a part of a conference a couple of months ago that was canceled. So they, they did it, you know, of course online and part of it was on Second Life. I didn't even know, I had no idea Second Life still existed. They, they have indeed survived. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's quite remarkable. I mean, it's, it is remarkable. It's the most unlikely of outcomes. It was either going to get big or it was going to crash and burn and it didn't either. Yeah. It just, uh, it, it, it hit a steady state of a half a million people and just stays there. Yeah. It's like one of these little, little islands that's a thousand miles from isolated species. And have you visited Google since you wrote Turing's Cathedral in 2005? Yes. Quite a number of times. And then I, part of this, uh, Google hosts a science conference every year that I've always gone to, which again was canceled this year. So that's a chance. But it's, of course, it's changed enormously. Google sort of went from nothing garage to IBM in 10 years. I mean, it's a very different world. You feel as if the progress that we've seen in the last 15 years is about what you were expecting or something surprised you? Well, what's surprising to me is how little things change, how we sort of, you know, Turing and von Neumann developed this model and it worked and we've just been stuck in it ever since. I mean, everything still more or less exists in this two-dimensional address matrix. It's just expanded, but it's still every bit in the digital universe has sort of von Neumann address. And now that's, that is finally starting to change. You finally are starting to see shifts away from that model, but no one has sort of come forward like Turing and really given us a sort of formal description of what this new model will be. We're just sort of stumbling around discovering it blindly. So the, we've got a lot of uh, people publishing uh, ideas about what a new sort of system would be, but nothing has really coalesced yet. Not yet. Maybe it is coalescing. We just don't see it. But I, And of course, I'm not that's not formally my field, but for what I see as an outside observer, it's it's you know just remarkable how much we're doing by just expanding the old system. So seventy years into the digital revolution, things bigger but not fundamentally different yet. But we would expect them to change soon. And one of the things I think you've said is that uh, we have all this digital infrastructure lying around, and we're putting it all together. And then we're building analog computers. Right. That's, of course, my you know personal theory of what's going on, how there's this big fundamental shift at the moment. But it's not very explicit the way we were explicit about digital computing. Could you unpack that for me about what you mean by we're now building analog computers with the digital infrastructure? The fundamental difference between analog and digital computing, I mean, it's not it's not what you use to compute. You can have digital computers made out of wood and you can have analog computers made out of silicon. But digital computing, the information is in the logical sequences of bits. Every bit has an exact meaning. And in analog computing, you're so in digital computing, you're using discrete functions. And in analog computing, you're computing with continuous functions. You're using sort of the general differences in frequency. And in nature, we see this very, very clearly divided that nature has learned to use digital computing, which is very good for error correction. We use digital computing in 
our genetic systems because they correct the errors from one generation to the next or, or introduce the errors that lead to improvement. But in nature, all real-time control is done with analog computing because it's much more adaptable and robust. There is no programming. There's no algorithm. So what happened was after World War II, we had all this analog equipment lying around, war surplus vacuum tubes and radar screens and so on. And this very small group of oddballs, which is what Turing's Cathedral is about, put that equipment together and built, realized Turing's vision of digital computers. And now I see the exact this has sort of gone full circle and the reverse is happening. We have all this infinite amount of digital computing. It's it's effectively free. And a lot of companies and a few individuals are starting to, we're starting to assemble that equipment into big analog computers where the meaning and the information is in the sort of continuous functions rather than discrete functions. I mean, sort of, if you look at like, you know, the YouTube network doesn't care what the bits actually say it just cares about the sort of the magnitude of the stream of bits and the frequency at which things connect information is in the topology of the network rather than the actual meaning of the code and that and for the same reason it works so well in nature it works very well in these large systems we're seeing like google or amazon or facebook got it so what they care about is how many people are watching that video and how frequently they don't really care what the bits are Right. And you build exactly, you start building circuits the way we built circuits with, you know, in vacuum tubes, the uh, streams of electrons are treated just as a continuous function. And we're doing that now. We're sort of treating streams of bits are treated like vacuum tubes treated streams of electrons. And you would see that not as positive or negative, just as interesting. Just as the next stage in evolution. I mean, evolution never stopped. We had the digital revolution to get where we are, but it's not going to stay that. Could we talk about AI for a bit? So... If we look at Turing and, you know, his paper, Computing, Machinery, and Intelligence, uh, which you've called a founding document of the quest for true AI, what do, what do you think most people are still getting wrong about AI? Well, they're anthropomorphizing it the same way we, you know, the other big, sort of, there's the search for AI, and then there's the search, which is a big part of my childhood, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And I think we sort of have both of those things wrong, and then my personal third angle on that is the search for you know for other intelligent creatures on earth i spent a lot of time in the, you know on the northwest coast among killer whales who i firmly believe are highly intelligent it's a non-human intelligence we have trouble communicating with it so there's a we tend to assume that the other intelligence is going to be like us and we look for language and things like that i think that's a dead end other kinds of intelligence are going to be other kinds of intelligence they're not we're getting very good at building sort of imitations of our own intelligence sort of captive systems. I'm much more interested in myself in wild AI, AI that will evolve on its own and be very different from us. And be adapted to its yeah, own Yeah, may, it may operate on a completely different time scale. There's no reason that other intelligence have to op- operate on our time scale. It could be operating much faster or much slower. Or operating in non-carbon. Yes. Yeah. Or in completely different ways, perhaps not using language the way we use language at all. We tend to equate intelligence with language. Right. And so we're making progress with AlphaGo and other forms of human intelligence mimicry, both in task and in speed and approach. But that's only one sliver, uh, maybe akin to the amount of visible light spectrum we can see with our eyeballs. Right. I mean, AlphaGo is interesting because Go, you know, if you watch a couple really good Go players, they're sort of almost non-human anyway. I mean, it really is an alien sort of way of operating. And so, you know, getting a machine that can do that is a very interesting step. Interesting. So you think it's uh, starting to be a, a quite a different flavor of intelligence, right on the edge of what humans naturally do. 
Right. That's what I think. And, and also personally, I mean, that paper of Turing's is famous for what we you know, what we call the Turing test, which is this idea that you can determine whether a machine is intelligent by, by having a conversation with it. And, and I, f- I believe exactly the opposite. The test of a real true AI would be intelligent enough not to reveal its intelligence to us. So the fact that we don't have machines that pass the Turing test is no, you know, is no proof that there, there are not intelligent machines. When you say that there are intelligent machines somewhere, you're saying somewhere in our vast sort of digital landscape that we've built over the last 40 years, 50 years, there is some form of intelligence potentially lurking out there that is operating and not lurking because that sounds nefarious. That's what you mean when you say there's no proof there's no intelligence. It could be. I mean, it doesn't necessarily. I'm a huge skeptic about sort of discrete artificial intelligence that we will ever have sort of a system in a box that you can put in your car that do everything. Or, but in terms of a distributed artificial intelligence, I'm a believer. Because with a distributed system, you have an opportunity for evolution, for it to find itself. And to learn on its own without. I'd love to read something quickly here, something you wrote, if you'll permit me, because I found it so fascinating. And I want to quote it for our listeners before I ask you about it. You wrote, quote, for 30 years, I've been wondering what indication of his existence might we expect from a true AI? Certainly not any explicit revelation, which might spark a movement to pull the plug. Anomalous accumulation or creation of wealth might be a sign or an unquenchable thirst for raw information, stored space and processing cycles, or a concerted attempt to secure an uninterrupted autonomous power supply. But the real sign, I suspect, would be a circle of cheerful, contented, intellectually and physically well-nourished people surrounding the AI. So my question is, is that what we have today? Is that what Silicon Valley and the extended uh, connectivity of the that group and Bellingham, Washington and whatnot, is that it? A, a circle of cheerful, contented, intellectually nourished people nourishing this potential AI? Is that where we are? Yes. Yeah, so of course, that that paragraph is dated by, you know, that was written after that visit to Google, where it, was, it just was like a magical kingdom at that time. I mean, people were getting their hair cut, swimming in pools on the campus. And to me, it was this incredible sense of here's this uh, machine that is absolutely making life paradise for the people who take care of it, making them wealthy and keeping them healthy and t- taking care of their, you know, there's a daycare taking care of the children. I mean, to me, that would be exactly what, you know, if you're going to have a real AI, that's how, how the people who take care of it would be taken care of. Got it. And this was, again, in 2005 when you saw that. And, and, and you go back now, and it's it's similar in many respects, and, and, and certainly in that respect, yes? Right. The problem now is that now it has a little bit of the edge of, there's a little bit of a darker side to it now, I think. I mean, at that time, it really seemed like this unbelievable, happy which, of course, was maybe scary in its own way, whereas now you really you really do get a sense that the sort of rules and regulations are very thinly below the surface. When you say that rules and regulations imposed by Google on itself or by, or by Google running up against the laws of the land? No, by the, the regulations that regulate the company. I mean, I'm no expert on Google, but I think now it's become a you know, much more organized has to, to be, I mean, to be that side. You kind of can't have that happy playground that they had. You know, at that time, it really was a horizontal rather than vertical company. I mean, everybody was in contact with each other. It was smaller and, and worth a lot less. And when you mentioned the dark side, could you talk to me about that? What sort of dark side are we experiencing as we move through this next phase of the development of the AI? Of course, now that's it's very popular and fashionable to talk about that, but just the fact that people's lives are being increasingly 
controlled and, and regulated, you know, generally often in a positive way, but it's very easy for that to shift the other way. I mean, one of the things I feel that has dramatically shifted since 2005 is really a, a focus on sort of money, right? So I think, you know, Amazon is now worth $1.5 trillion or something. And you've got Facebook at 650 and Google just passed a trillion of its value and Apple as well. And, and 15 years ago, none of this was true, right? These were small companies relative to the rest of the economy, the rest of wealth generation. And as the wealth Wealth has increased. They're sort of the focus on the philosophy, which is where I would see you know your great role uh, being played here, George. Um, it tends to get pushed to the background, and I feel like in 2005 there was more air, there was more oxygen, and more attention being paid to the philosophy. Am I wrong about that? Uh, no, you're you're very right. That time there was still a connection to this, you know, the origin myth that you're you're so interested in. I mean, the fact that Apple in particular, I mean, it was easy to imagine Apple becoming a big computer company, to imagine that they would become a big company in the sense of bigger than any company in the world is unthinkable. But at that time, even in the turn of the century, there were still, and still are a very few, I mean, there were people at Apple who, who were there from the beginning, I mean, who had been, you know, academic mathematical logicians playing with computers, maybe doing the odd database for the government or something, and nowhere near turning any of that into a consumer product. And that all happened so quickly. The same at Google. I mean, Google came out of the academic world. It's almost as if the personality of those working on the AI has been shifting a bit from this sort of cheerful hobbyist, you know, technical, cheerful hobbyist to more of a sort of a driven, purposeful, you know, money conscious type of uh, professional as the whole thing has gotten bigger and vast in terms of the money and the people it touches. And it seems as if that means we're moving into a, a new phase here. Yes, the cycle is very much faster. I mean, if you build any sort of ac academic AI group within a, you know, within what used to be sort of the ivory tower, the kind of Alan Turing world now in no time at all, it usually gets acquired or spun out as a, either as a company or as part of one of these existing companies, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but it's something to, you know, to be careful of. Yeah, it's definitely a shift. And is there anything that you'd love for, you know, some of the early founders in their 20s and early 30s who are embarking on startups, are there some things that you hope that they are, are cognizant of as they move forward? One of my careers, the one that brings me here is that I'm, I'm a historian. So I sort of dig around in the past. It's like looking for fossils and you find these things and you show them to people. And that's you know, why I put those stories in my books, because I think if you work in this field today, those creation myths are, are really important. Look at computing it. So it has an Old Testament and a New Testament. The Old Testament was the just these logicians and philosophers. And then in the New Testament, it became real. People start building machines. And that sort of moment between those two eras is where it all comes from. And if I think for people who work in the field, it's a good thing to go back and look at, you know, what the people wrote and said at that time. And people, of course, Turing and von Neumann, but there were many others. And also the engineer who get always so little credit, you know, the engineers who actually build the things and get them to work and have to understand things just as much, if not more than the scientists, but somehow the scientists get the voice and the engineers usually don't. Yeah, because you've, you've mentioned that while digital computers were formalized by Turing and delivered by von Neumann, it was actually Julian Bigelow who was the engineer there. And he doesn't seem to get much credit. No, he was sort of the missing link. It had an unbelievably prophetic, clear view of what was wrong with the von Neumann system and how it should be improved. And he was just not listened to. He would have been generations ahead. And this was back in the 50s? Is this when that? Yeah. So he was, he was 
I mean, he started working with Norbert Wiener in, in World War II on anti-aircraft fire control. But when so when von Neumann needed an engineer, Bigelow was the guy. But he immediately, I mean, the mission was to build this machine to do the hydrogen bomb calculations, but they, they wanted to build a second machine and a third machine. And he wanted to make them completely different. He, he saw the, the huge flaws in this von Neumann architecture that it only used a fraction of a percent of the power of the machine. But we got stuck in that. Only beginning, I mean, only a few of our processors, you know, used for graphics, GPUs and so on, are slightly beginning to escape from that sort of von Neumann. And, and von Neumann himself, he only ever took out one patent. It was for a method of non-von Neumann computing. So it feels as if we have the philosophers and the logicians. We've got the engineers, and now we've got the financiers. And there's sort of these three groups of people. And do you empathize more with one, the idea person, the execution person? Well, I'm, personally, I'm on the side of the engineers because that's just the way I was as a child. I just was fascinated by nuts and bolts and wrenches and tools and machines. Mother was sort of a philosopher, a logician, so I, so I you know, have a soft spot for that world too. And then you had these sort of unique people who like to do both, and they were very important. How do you think we could do a better job of listening to these engineers? Elevate their voice and their status. I mean, that's a good thing about the Silicon Valley ecosystem, that it does. A lot of these companies are built by engineers and funded because they have some some engineering innovation. So that's changed. But in the academic world, it was always the other way around, that if you sort of were tainted, if you did any engineering, you were no longer a pure scientist. Interesting. It was almost shunned to do the hard work, to do the, the work by hand was lower status. Right. You know, wartime, that's I think one of the reasons this all happened after World War II. Wartime had a wonderful way of breaking down those barriers where suddenly the physicists were you know, allowed to work with high explosives and the mathematicians were allowed to work with electronics. I'd love to chat with you about also our evolving relationship with technology. At one point, when you were younger than you are now, you really rejected high tech, right? I mean, you were canoeing or kayaking for months at a time. You were living in a treehouse for years, 90 feet above the ground and up in the Pacific Northwest there. And what was the catalyst for that? How were you thinking about life at that point? You were in your early 20s, I guess. Yes. I moved to Canada when I was 17. So a big part of it was just escaping from the uh, deadly boredom of you know, I dropped out of high school and I found Princeton to be the most boring place in the world and tried to get as far away as I could. And our family, you know, my sister Esther, we, we have a sort of mixed up extended family with a bunch of siblings, but Esther and I are the only sibling. You know, we have the same mother and the same father and that's sort of this unique bond. I think nature does that for a reason. I mean, sort of you got two kids and they're just completely different because I think, I think nature is somehow hardwired that it's a good survival strategy to not have both your kids, you know, do the same thing. So Esther went into the high tech world and I went 180 degrees the other way off to the Canadian wilderness. And not against technology. I mean, I, you know, I love chainsaws and diesel engines and electronics and so on, but it just get away from the, uh, from the centers of civilization. You talk about it as separate from the world of man. Yeah. I spent a lot of time out, out in the wild with nothing but animals and forests and trees and oceans and boats. I mean, my passion was boats. Do you typically do that alone or do you do that with small groups? Or I did that mostly alone, but I love being in groups. Like when I would, you know, work on a fishing boat or a tugboat with a crew, I found that just great. A lot of the stuff I did completely alone. And so you're doing that. And then what brought you back into this sort of scientific analysis? What brought you back to the world of man? That's actually, it's pretty much Esther's to her credit or her fault or whatever, but she was very generous about, uh, you know, she, back then in the eight, 1980s, she was running this computer conference that sort of became the computer conference for the for the growing personal community. It started out as a semiconductor conference. And she invited me, my 
girlfriend at the time was a photographer. So she hired a girlfriend who had married. And so we would get to go to her conference every year. So I just, I just was like brought out of the woods into the, you know, beginning of that, that whole world and, and found it fascinating to watch and observe. But that's definitely, otherwise I think I would never have got into that world at all. That's fascinating that that's how you came back. It's, you know, and I've, I've been to that conference many times and it was indeed the tech conference of, of the year and in this country for sure. And it was, it was interesting because it was the conference. Most things happened there. And so it kept everyone on the same page in a way. Now as industries become much more far flung, it's a little bit harder to keep all the edges together to take a scope of what it all is. But okay, I see how you came back through that. That makes sense. Yeah, and Esther had a very extremely sensible policy of, of encouraging families, sort of having family activities and stuff. So you, to try and avoid the, you know, sort of CEOs who come just for the afternoon, give their talk and leave. It was like, you know, you wanted to go to that conference for the whole three days. That's right. There was a humanity to it. There was a feeling to it in the same way that you must have had that feeling at Google, the special sort of happy, intellectually well-nourished people who are actually connecting both physically and emotionally and intellectually there. Interesting. So how do you think we are doing? we humans with our relationship to technology today? I think we're completely disoriented and sort of lost our, you know, I wouldn't say lost our bearings, but we're, you know, know, flying blind would be the metaphor or something. We, you know, we're moving so fast. We don't really, we can't really see where we're going. It's just, it's just rushing forward and particularly not just the technology side, but the biotechnology side, which everyone talks about just the same way we talk about computing, all this stuff is going to happen, but it now is happening. Real sort of full-scale ability to edit genetic information and so on. It opens an entirely new world. I mean, the sort of the language of genetics and the, the machine language of cells and the machine language of computers are much closer to each other than to uh, human language. So. No, it's true. We we had a podcast with Trevor Martin, who's the CEO of Mammoth Biosciences, which is now the largest IP repository of CRISPR IP in the world. And we were talking with him about this newfound ability to simply and inexpensively edit genes is going to unleash a, a whole risk, a whole, whole set of new risks, as well as the opportunities that, that everyone can see. We should tread carefully for sure. Yeah. The other way to look at it is that, that sort of life has done this already and is very good at it. I mean, we had cells that were reproducing very well. I mean, the earth was sort of covered in slimy life, but didn't, uh, didn't have replication really. So that's, that's my belief. And then, you know, nature sort of figured out how to adopt these self-replicating almost viruses to, you know, to build our genetic system. And I think life will just do that again. The sort of technological systems we're building for sort of replicating and distributing genetic information are, it's, it's one way of looking at it is that we are using life and we're sort of building these biotechnologies. And the other way to look at it is the, exactly the opposite way around. It's life using our technologies to sort of build better, more distributed forms of life. I think that's right. And I remember the analogy um, that we did not cultivate wheat, but that wheat cultivated us to to serve its own purpose. Exactly. And and do you believe that we're going to continue to accelerate this rapidly? I mean, I would agree that we are disoriented at this point, given the speed of change of our own technologies. And it's growing exponentially now. We're sort of getting into the steeper part of the curve, I would say, in the last 20 years, 30 years. And do you think it's going to continue? Over the next, as Kurzweil and Singularity University people say, to be so that it will eventually be unrecognizable to us, or or do you think there's going to need to be a, a shift, a downshift, if you will? Well, it's an interesting time to ask that question. I mean, first of all, I strongly disagree with Ray Kurzweil. The things he is hoping for terrify me, and the things he's afraid of don't scare me at all. 
but you know, I think we're on a very different trajectory. And then your question about limits, of course, we're in the middle of this very interesting black swan case where we, we thought everything was just rushing forward and then suddenly we hit this limit. Oh, what if there's actually just a good old fashioned you know, novel virus that, you know, the problem there is that whatever you argue about the origins of this virus, it's a bat virus that has learned to live and adapt and survive among bats who are these mammals that live by the millions in caves. It's, that's how we live. What we need to do is stop acting like bats, get out of the caves. And, and uh, But we're not. I mean, across the street from me is a bar. And I mean, a bar is full now of people. They're just flying back into their dark cave. From a technology point of view, this may be a really positive inflection point, the reset or reboot. You can see things like, of course, Amazon is doing great. Certain systems are adapting to this very well. And then, and then other institutions, you know, like your local bar are not, not going to do well, but, but it's, it's a huge unexpected shift. A reset or a slowing of the curve could uh, come in one form or another, but it might just accelerate different parts of the curve as this all sort of mathematically plays out as the intelligence that we represent is going to be part of bringing the next intelligences around as well. So what are you working on now, George? I just finished a new book that took took me seven years. Turing's Cathedral took about 10. And that came out in 2012, about seven years after the, the initial article. Yes. So that seems to be what about what it takes me. I mean, the, the remarkable thing about Turing's Cathedral is that, you know, that group of people who I so admire, the Julian Bigelow group with von Neumann, and, you know, they conceived of the project, found the money, built their own workbenches, built the machines, built the computer and solved these nuclear weapons problems and started working on climate and weather and everything. You know, they did all that in less time than it took me to write about it, which is the other mess, you know, message for the today's entrepreneurs and stuff. It's just that's the reason to look back at these sort of heroic uh, efforts. And, and that's where of course, the current the pandemic crisis, the same thing. I mean, it's, it's going to push biotechnology the same way World War II pushed physics. Everybody's working on, on this biological problem and that, that in the end will have all sorts of secondary effects. So, anyway, so I finished a new book and I'm literally, it's be out in a few weeks. So I was wondering whether they would delay it or not, but it's on schedule. Analogia, and it's in some ways a sequel to Turing's Cathedral, but in a very strange, it's a very, very odd book. I mean, it uh, opens with the Russians coming to Alaska, and opens with Leibniz and trying to take over the world with digital computers and then come convinces Peter the Great to go to America. And so it's a book of stories. It's written much more as a narrative. It's a chapter about the war against the Apaches. And then I, some very kind of a prophetic, but possibly dark sort of views of, of the future and, and, and this, what we talked about earlier, this transition from the digital revolution back to a sort of an analog revolution. That's the theme of the book. Got it. Got it. Well, I look forward to, uh, to seeing it. It'll come out this summer then. Come, yeah, August August 18th and heavily illustrated and very short. It's sort of more the length of Darwin among the machines rather than you know big, thick book like Turing's Cathedral. Well, George, this has been a real pleasure talking to you today. I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for everything you've done for all of us who have been following your writings and been inspired to feel some purpose and direction and meaning in the digital world we're building together. Thank you. And it's, uh, it's great to talk to you and have an audience out there who's looking to the future. Absolutely. Thank you, sir. Thank you. 